Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos. Uh, we have a great guest today who's going to bring uh, in the topic of uh, healthcare emergency management. You know, uh, interestingly enough, uh, as I've said with some other guests in the past, Greg and I have uh, sort of passed each other in the night, probably bumped elbows here and there. Uh, we work the same district, but not at the same time. So uh, we both have an EMS background. Uh, before getting into emergency management, Greg was a, a paramedic at a uh, fire district out on Long Island, uh, as I was a paramedic in New York City, but he also has an extensive background in emergency management in the healthcare sector in New York City, and uh, I'll let him tell you uh, who he is uh, by all by himself. Hello, <laughs> Greg, and welcome to Five Minutes to uh, Chaos. Thanks, Steve. Good to see you. Good to be here. I look forward to our conversation. Yep. So tell us about your, your, your career, you know, how's, how's, how it started and where you are and how did you get there? So, it, you know, like many of us in this business, we start in some level of public safety. So mine turned out to be EMS. I lived in the suburbs. So when I was looking for some, uh, something interesting to do, I joined the local ambulance squad and uh, back in the 91. And really that kind of set the stage for the rest of where I am today at uh, 30 years later or so. And, um, I got into doing that right away, and I was really interested in taking care of patients. That was the first thing that drives us. And then once you start really getting into the patients and the systems and stuff, you really start to see where in, how it's interesting, where the rubber meets the road to you know, the connections that you make, the networking, and, and where it goes from there. And I ended up working uh, in Suffolk County uh, at a at university hospital there as a, a medical control operator. And that put me into the situation where I got uh, an, an opportunity to be asked to be the, the director of medical control, which really networked me into uh, the, all the people that I knew. And then ultimately, you know, had a change of pace, go into New York City and uh, try my bones there and went into New York City, worked for um, Lenox Hill for a number of years as a street medic, a supervisor, assistant director, director, did emergency management from about 2008 on from there. And that's, you know, that is such an interesting, you know, turn of events. You know, you, you're involved in all of these different things, these planning opportunities, networking with hospital executives and other hospital executives and associations and it really becomes a a fertile ground in which you can learn more about the craft, learn more about how other people do it and make it better for your own environment. And so that whole pathway to get to this point, I think is really interesting because like you said in the opening, you know, we kind of were in the same areas, but, you know, here we are all these years later, you know, collaborating on, on something like this where other people will be able to glean some information from us as well. And I just find that fascinating to, you know, how things just come full circle. Uh, I took a little time into, uh, you know, in between hospitals, I worked for the Red Cross, 
actually, as a, as a, as a emergency manager, essentially. And that really taught me something interesting that, you know, and you might appreciate this too, Steve, when we, when we build exercises in, in the healthcare sector and, or even in the municipal sector, oftentimes we say, oh, well, that will get handled by the not-for-profits or we'll just, you know, we throw that off as a, as a, you know, as an inject and say, well, how would you manage all these patients? Well, we just call the not-for-profits or we get the, the volunteer agencies. But when you're actually in working for that, that all of a sudden that you get that dumped on you, uh, it becomes really quite eye-opening as to how that really works and how much there is behind that. So I learned a lot about the not-for-profit volunteer uh, disaster sector, uh, which I think was a key part to learning about this whole system, uh, managing people, managing resources, sheltering, feeding, uh, you know, all that kind of thing really just uh, put a put a totally different spin on everything. You know, now and now I'm with, a, you know, a large academic medical center system in the city, uh, which, uh, you know, spans uh, several boroughs and uh, couldn't be more happier. Uh, being uh, had the opportunity to be here as well, and I still I still have a paramedic license. I don't use it as often as as I used to, but it's still something I I, I hold near and dear to myself. Well, I'm jealous. I uh, I would love to recertify, but it, it <laughs> being out of state, it, it's it, it's hard to do that. Sure. I actually tried to uh, certify in Colorado, but they are a national registry state. For those EMS providers mm. uh, who listen to the podcast, will know what that is. And uh, it was a bridge too far that I wasn't in practicing medic sure. uh, at the time. But be being a paramedic was one of the highlights of my career, uh, which if 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 you know some of the stories I've told in earlier podcasts, which led me into a lifelong pathway into emergency management, similar to yourself. Along those lines, I'd like to uh, comment about EMS and emergency management. I believe that because EMS sits at uh, at the nexus between police, fire, healthcare, public health, public works. EMS has to work with everybody, and not that the other agencies don't. Utilities, healthcare, public health. Uh, EMS uh, leaders are well positioned because of the way that we have to um, manage relationships, manage mm -hmm. events to to get stuff done you, you know i i think a good example might be if you're at the scene of a mass casualty incident the incident commander might be you know chief in a fire department or, or police chief if it's a, a violence event but it, when it comes to the point where we're treating triage tri, triaging treating and moving victims you need help with the other you know the other agencies and uh, having those relationships and being able to tap people on the shoulder and say hey i need i need a hand can you get me some could you get me some help here? I I recall an incident of of many of the war stories I have. Uh, bus accident on uh, Flatbush Avenue outside Floyd Bennett Field. So this is south of the Bell Parkway before you go over the bridge onto the Rockaways. And uh, uh, a school bus accident, the driver was pinned and, and was DOA. And we had a ton of kids hurt. And... Uh, the uh, uh, just grabbed FDNY was on the scene with a second alarm assignment because of the, we came in a school bus accident. But, you know, battalion chief was gracious in, in assigning firefighters to help uh, move. Uh, the The transport area was 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 far down the line because of uh, traffic. 
Mm-hmm. There was, you know, it was just Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. And uh, we had to move victims from the triage treatment area down to transport. And uh, just, you know, just having the relationships, being able to, to you know, to, to to work the issues and get stuff done. I mean, it's it's sort of the, the core to crisis management. Your point about NGOs or the nonprofits that work emergency management, I agree with. And, and you have a lesson there that, uh, you know, a, a takeaway that I think it's important for the emergency managers that listen to the podcast to understand. And it's that you cannot just assume that the NGOs are going to have it. So if you, let's talk about uh, ESF six emergency support function mm-hmm. six, which is mass care and human services. You cannot just say the American Red Cross or the Salvation Army or the combination of the both, or your local human resource agency has it because they may have their own challenges as well. And you sort of, sort of uh, reference that yeah the reason i say that is because there's a spin-up time that they have that isn't always the same i didn't realize when i went to work there you know my you know i was one of the very few paid um you know people in this in the organization there there especially for the long island part of it there was only a handful of us everybody else is a volunteer Right. And most of those volunteers, you know, live across two different counties and they're trained at very different levels of, of response. And we leaned on them to do even local response for them was, you know, multi multi uh, family uh, dwelling fire or even a, a, just a regular home fire, which they responded to a lot. You have to put a lot of resource together to get those people off the street and into some you know, into shelter. And if you make that a multifamily dwelling, now you're dealing with multiple families, multiple pieces. You know, you're talking about language barriers. You're talking about loss of income, loss of life, loss, you know, injuries and what have you. You know, um, once the fire is out and, you know, kind of the hoses are rolled up, you know, the EMS guys are gone. That leaves us with you know, us, I see the, you know, the Red Cross at the mm-hmm. time sure. with a really big lift, you know, and so uh, you start to translate that into where the Red Cross is congressionally, you know, part of the, of an F of the um, NTSB and FAA response in, a, in an aircraft accident where there's loss of life. You know, you put that into, you know, you start to redouble those requirements. They have spin up times that aren't what we're used to. They have to bring people from all around specialties. They have to plug in all different types of resources that aren't necessary at your fingertips. And it's really interesting to be on that side of the coin. If memory serves, correct me if I'm wrong, the American Red Cross is the only non-federal agency that has a congressional mission and mandate. And that, yes, co- that probably goes back to, so that, so that I'm correct there. So that goes back to probably, uh, you know, the early days of the organization, but sure. I mean, they're excellent at what they do, but the point about spin up time is important. So if you're working a hurricane, uh, where you, you know, the storm is a week away and you're starting to put your program together, evacuation shelters are starting to stand up. The American Red Cross is probably going to be able to accommodate that because they have the, have the lead time, right? You, you spoke oh, for about sure. the lead time. Yeah. The lead time for, for, you know, a pre landfill, a landfill, for example, is, you know, certainly part of their, their operating picture, but you know, it's the sudden ones, the gas explosions in New York city, the, you know, the building collapses, the right. multifamily dwelling fires, these things are, no notice events that require massive amounts of resources and um, certainly a lot of work gets put into these things. And well, um, how, well how about like Palestine, uh, East Palestine, Ohio? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to evacuate even a part of a town, 
I, I think we cannot expect any agency. I'm totally not picking on the Red Cross. I want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. I'm actually supportive of, of the mission, but I want to be clear that they need their lead up time. We, emergency management can't expect that they're going to have be able to just flip the switch and the lights go on and you have general pop uh, shelters, special uh, need shelters, medical shelters, animal care shelters, that sure. kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you just you mentioned and a whole host of things that are resource intense resource, you know, uh, support is is tr is tremendous, and a lot of pre planning has to happen too, you know. And again, we're we're, you know, the organization leans heavily on its volunteer force, which has to come from home. They have to sort out their, you know, all their other things to get to where, especially if it's in a regional wide emergency. All those folks are just as affected by, you know, as anybody else. So you know, you have the you know loss of of support there. But, you know, even just to get them to, you know, a week, <laughs> yeah. you know, to respond, you know, it seems simple because we're, we come from a background, where we're always awake, you know, there's always somebody at the, at the switch, right? It's not always the case in, in some cases, and certainly across the country where in rural areas, it's certainly uh, more critical. And, and, and that makes sense if you think about it, the, the services they provide, you know, my experience with the Red Cross is twofold as a uh, responder to uh, residential fires in New York City. Uh, and, and of course, on a more global scale dealing with the, you know, the evacuation of populations during hurricanes, and uh, to some extent, uh, wildfires in my, uh, so hurricanes on my coastal mm -hmm. life uh, as an emergency manager, wildfires in my inland life when I was in Colorado. So let's, uh, let's uh, slide into um, healthcare crisis management, uh, chaotic events, uh, healthcare emergency management. You have some, some anecdotes, I believe we can sort of center a discussion around. Sure, you know, and the basis of a healthcare response, and you know, obviously the hospitals, it's we are the hospitals have the mission to, you know, provide medical care in the community, and everybody knows that. But you know, there's a whole set of rules that go along with it, you know, through the Joint Commission and CMS, and you know, those things sort of drive the programs that we have at the hospitals to provide emergency management and disaster response. And so, uh, no, so no, I don't think everybody would know what JCO is. So if you could speak a little bit about that and what those regulations are, I think that helps sort of frame of the conversation. The Joint Commission, you know, is the, is basically it. They come to the hospitals. If you're a Joint Commission hospital, you will they will come on behalf of CMS to to evaluate your hospital's ability. To, and CMS is the uh, that's the Center for uh, Medicaid Medicare. Got that's who th that handles uh, all the all the reimbursement. Okay. So they, um, on behalf of them, they'll come out to the hospitals and evaluate your regulation, make sure you're following the regulations on any number of things. There's dozens and dozens of chapters and, and, and all kinds of things. And for emergency management, there's a number of chapters they want you to kind of follow. Now they don't prescribe anything. They don't tell you how to do it. They tell you have to do these things, emergency operation plan, resource asset management, utility management, and, and, and the list goes on. But, um, as a program manager, what we do is we take all the information and we start to build the program around our footprint and where it works best based upon our population, our support on the outside, how many people we have at the hospital, you know, uh, how, how many, what the patient care is, what the specialties and so on. So as a result of that, we, we decide how to run our program and we do training and exercises based on uh, hazard vulnerability analysis that we'll do on an annual basis. That's a regulatory requirement. So we look at what our hazards are. We look at what hazards uh, affected us and how we responded to those. And we kind of put together a, a, an annual plan to see how we're going to manage our hospital's resources. Are those hazards we, um, 
diverse and broad? And do they cover internal risks as well, such as cyber, potential sure. failures of mechanical infrastructure, technology? 100%. Yeah, they're, um, you know, most most uh, organizations will use a, a variation of the Kaiser model to evaluate their risk. And that includes technological failures, utility failures, external fires, floods, you know, um, weather, natural disasters, and then human related things such as so, cyber or, or, or terrorism. So the Kaiser model of memory serves uh, is a hospital based uh, risk assessment model that produces a quantitative data set based on inputs from uh, which are which are both sort of subjective because you're interviewing people to, to, to get their input right. and based on whether you have what your risk level is, your risk tolerances, and then what mitigation strategies might be in place. Like uh, simply put, if you have an EOP, an emergency operations plan, that may reduce the number, hence uh, reducing your Just risk, risk right. scale. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly It's not right. as complicated it, as I made it sound. It, you know, it essentially uses a, an, uh, an, um, an equation that bases a risk off of uh, preparation and and likelihood of occurrence. So, like in in some areas, you some places like in Florida, you'll the hospitals will not score or score very low snowfall, for example. I would hope. Uh, you know, some places will still get it in in the south, but that's not the point. The the point right. is that they may actually have that's a low risk high uh, impact event to them. For example, if it's an area that doesn't see it very often, but in our case, we see it often. So. It's like a moderate score. We know we're going to get snow. We know we're prepared for it because we have an infrastructure that supports. And our, so therefore, we don't spend a lot of time you know, drilling around you know, snowfall. But we may drill around something else that's more impactful to us, for example, a cyber attack or um, you know, a, 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 an MCI that has to do with you know, trauma or something because that might produce a lot of patients and overwhelm you know, anybody's, uh, you know, hospital. So that's kind of, you're right. So we, we figure out the risk, how it's mitigated against its, uh, against its likelihood. And we come up with a set of numbers at the, at the end of this, you know, uh, exercise and we score them and say, well, the top five things that we have here, well, let's work on those a little bit. And we may select certain types of exercises. We may select certain types of training. We may, um, we may present certain ideas to mitigate through hardening or, uh, you know, some sort of capital expenditure to support, hey, let's uh, make sure that we don't have exposed, uh, you know, fascia on the building, right. you know, during do high you, winds. Does the, does the model produce or do you produce as a corollary to the quantitative numerical num, numerical model, uh, the qualitative side, the narrative, the story, as I like to call it? Uh, yes, there is you, an... I, I, I spoke about this recently on one of the other episodes. It, uh, yeah, I went into a CEO once and said, you know, here's your risks, you know, five, six, seven, three. And he's like, could you just tell me what my risks are? And we had a discussion <laughs> about it. And, and, you know. Yeah, we, you know, we, we have uh, a lot of um, what we do here, you know, because emergency management has come so far into the healthcare arena that it's a natural occurrence to have us in the operations, you know, group and the senior staff. So they're very well aware of those things. And we have those conversations through our subcommittee meetings, uh, the trainings and the updates I have with, uh, you know, senior staff. So they're all well aware of that. It's not like we keep it a secret, you know, certainly it's part of, you know, their outlook on, on, on the building and the campus and the, and, and how it fits into the system. So you certainly want to make sure that everybody is aware of these things. And if, and this way they can, they can lend support to it either financially or, or otherwise, you know, to say, 
well, we've addressed these issues through any number of means and now we're, our risk is less. And we've seen that actually. We've done, over the years that I've been here, we've seen risk reduced based on the idea that we're pre presenting this information in there and there's been a response to it over time. And we've actually reduced risk of things, which is the whole point of it. That's excellent. And that, that really speaks volumes to a risk-based approach to emergency management. I, I have always struggled with the all hazards approach, and I've pretty much settled on the fact that uh, if in, a, in, a, in an emergency plan or a crisis management plan taxonomy, the all hazards plan is pretty much the, the broad components of the emergency operations plan that provide the structure of the incident management team or crisis management team that can pretty much be stood up to react to, to everything. Mm -hmm. But if you take a risk-based approach, the next tier down would be your, your business unit or your department-based, whether you're in the private sector or in the public sector, uh, emergency response plans or business continuity plans. Mm -hmm. And that's where the rubber meets the road because that's where we're talking about risk-specific issues. Absolutely. And, you know, business continuity is, is starting to take uh, hold in the healthcare arena is more than it has before. Certainly that, you know, from the finance sector and from, you know, um, from the banking, you know, uh, sectors, you know, those things are well in, in place there. They, there's there's lots of things that can't fail that has to be 100% all the time, utilities, et cetera. But, you know, um, it's not, oh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big process to go through those, those business operation evaluations and go all the way down every single, you know, every department and down to every last detail and find out where their soft spots are. It takes a long time to do that. And we're actually we're actually looking at that now in more of a formal process. And I think it's really exciting. I find that to be arduous and I struggle with whether there is value in going so low on the chain. Uh, you're talking about a business impact analysis, and mm -hmm. I, I struggle with whether there's value in going so deep that you you sort of get lost in the source. And I've had um, opportunity to, in in previous positions, take um, the five why model for root cause analysis and sort of turn that into a, a five watt model for business impact analysis and and just saying okay to an organization what are your five top business functions so i i, I when oh, maybe 15 years ago we did a contract with a new york state agency that uh, had financial responsibilities and they came up with five top business functions that if they failed would cause us it's the comptroller's office so no mm -hmm. no secret there uh their type five, top five functions involved you know paying salary mm -hmm. paying pensioners uh funding state agencies purchasing and there was one other that escapes me at the moment and then we from there we, you know we did the planning looking beyond those but uh we didn't use the five model then but i i sort of started drawing it from that this agency knew exactly what their five most critical uh functions were and they were they were single they were points of failure doesn't not say single points of right failure. so i i i hear what you're saying but i uh, i'm not saying that we don't go that deep. I'm saying there it needs a discussion by by professionals that do this to see whether there's real value in going that deep. Yeah, I agree. I, to your point, you know, spending a lot of time 
trying to reveal things that can't really be fixed is something also to consider. You know, some, there's always, you know, the turnover or the, you know, just the, 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 the dynamic nature of a hospital on a daily basis. It's hard to pin down one particular thing. It's not producing widgets every day, right? It's, it's producing yeah, yeah. a whole nother set of things. And there are some things that are worth looking at functions and systems. There are some things that are just going to be what they are. Well, I, th I think if you go too deep too, you start losing people. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm starting. I'm starting to see, and I was counseled recently by uh, a good friend and colleague in the global crisis management arena that his and what he is seeing in working with large organizations uh, are that um, that is what we're talking about here from a programmatic perspective is problematic from an attention span. Mm -hmm. So we're, 100%. what he's talking about and, and what he suggested to me is we start looking at things uh, by way of loss of workforce, which is a challenge right now. Right? Work from home, pandemic, nobody wants to work. Uh, I'm overstating that probably. So uh, loss of workforce, loss of facilities and loss of business operations and, and, and going beyond that, I'm starting to lose people. So um I guess I'm just saying that there are you know, multiple ways to look at this and perhaps as a business, as an industry, emergency management, crisis management, business continuity is opportunity for us to to come up with a better mousetrap than the old uh, sluggish BIA model. I agree. I think it's, in, it's definitely worth looking at. Uh, what about, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think we do injustice to the conversation if we don't talk a little bit about COVID because mm -hmm. I think um, in our brief conversation, you were in the thick of it uh, as a hospital emergency manager. So why don't we talk COVID, your experience and crisis management challenges and how you and your team overcame them? Yeah, you know, it's like, where do you start? But where, you know, to me, it's, it's one of those times where, you know, you kind of have to look back and say, how did we even manage to do what we did? And I think that the root of that comes to the fact that we have good relationships here at the hospital. Uh, you know, all the all the people we work with on a daily basis, you know, you really start to, you know, know who you are and who you're working with. And that really gets you to the next level. You know, the ability for all of us to become, to be adaptable and flexible and nimble um, those things were the underpinnings of our success, you know, that we had and having the ability, you know, having had already worked with a lot of these people on a, on different fronts, certainly when you bring together in a, in a heavily crisis situation, it, it, it just makes it, you don't have to, you don't have to go through all of those barriers first. You're already, those have been long down. So to, to my, you know, my, under, my approach to this was we're a team already let's function as a team let's get these objectives sorted out and that was the way it was on it that's a that way it was daily and weekly and monthly ultimately was what is our objective today what do we want our objective to be tomorrow this was like we did three briefings a day we put a paper big paper on the wall we wrote things down we didn't you know we didn't leave the gaps hanging for the next the next day uh, we had to solve these things and over over a time period because we were doing multiple things at once we were procuring things we were um, we were bringing people in you know uh, they were 
patients had to be uh, screened, people had to be treated, people had to be discharged. And then you know, we had a large number of decedents that had to be managed in a, in a very, very specific way. If I had to if I had say anything about this, that was probably the biggest challenge, decedent management, um, huge, huge, huge um, effort to get that right the first time. You know, I had done a lot of, fortunately, I guess I had done a lot of training about 10 years prior or maybe a little less when we did some of this training for H1N1. You know, I got to tell you, if we hadn't had that in our toolkit and our basis of education, that would have made it that much harder, frankly. So did did any of the federal infrastructure come to bear in this national disaster mortuary system under the national disaster medical system, any of that? It, it was not there initially. That was, you know, their spin up was um, near, I would, I'm not going to say at the end, but most of the my interaction with them came after the main peak when we started, you know, kind of settling into um, the backside of the of the initial surge in the in the spring. Um, we worked with them to to sort out some of the um, you know some of the decedent management pieces that we were outside of, because you know they were really there to support the city itself rather than individuals. You know, so yeah. um, so we had to work through the stepwise processes you do from, you know, from local on up to federal. Right. Uh, but the assets that we needed and the resources that we needed, I mean, ultimately came from from the, that they were sourced financially through that. But that was managed, you know, by vendors locally, you know, so and because we had a really tight system of communication through, you know, our incident command, com, you know, the command centers were connected. We were able to make requests. You know, I didn't have to beat the bushes for something. I called the person who we worked with at above me in the system. I said, Hey, I need this, I, this resource. And then they managed the resource down to us. And right. then we had to do the groundwork, of course, but which was really, you know, that's where the rubber met the road. So, if you want to talk about that. So a quick question, we didn't touch on this, but for those not in the healthcare sector that might be listening in, there is an emergency management infrastructure for hospitals. Correct me if I'm wrong, called HICS, H-I-C-S. Yes, that's uh, that's the the uh, the, the identifier for that. You know, hospital incident command system. Yes, and that and that was and it's somewhat what you use there. Some. Yeah, there's no question that we borrowed from that. Uh, you know, it, I like that uh, you borrowed. You made it work. Right, because you know. In a hospital command center, you know, when you do the training and it's a one hour exercise or you're doing a very, uh, you know, your incident is short lived a couple of hours, you know, sometimes you get away with, you know, it's identifying, hey, you're now the operations section chief, you're the planning section chief. Ultimately, it just became the command center was more of a, a, a the place where we all got together. We weren't referring to each other as that. We weren't saying, all right, well, you know, maybe maybe incident commander, you could have said that. But this thing went on for so many weeks that it, it, it almost didn't matter what you were called. You just know that we had the people in the room that we needed to execute the objectives for the day and for the next day and for the you know for the rest of the week. It just came. It just comes together. You know, familiarity yeah. with uh, each other, almost finishing each other's sentences. You're in the room together. Uh, it sounds like you were pretty much all present did, when you did these three briefings today were some people remote that had to dial in we um we we had at some point we had to do that because having that many people in one room was probably a bad idea uh, we had Fair lost enough. a few people you know we lost some people on and off through you know actually i never even i didn't get sick until like a year and a half later so but um the point was, is we didn't want everybody in the room at the same time so we did set up a conference call so if so that we didn't have to drag 
providers from their floors and we didn't have to drag directors from the you know from their from their areas so we would do these you know we would do a morning brief and say all right this is what happened last night this is what we're looking at today and then you know set the objective for, the, for that first half of the day and then that mid early afternoon we would do a, a secondary briefing to say where are you with the objectives that we set up for the morning are we having any problems all right that's solved and that's solved so what's the next thing so we, let's find out what we need to do before we all you know we had a night shift but they weren't that operational they would just they would handle um requests of some sort or you know because we we had met, we did materials management in the same place where people can come to get things if they right. needed them you know I like what you're saying because we're talking about a get it done model. Uh, and I was raised in the emergency management business by senior leaders whom uh, I still have great admiration and respect for. It's about getting it done. I've worked in, in I worked around the country, as you know, and I've been to different areas of the country uh, that have different philosophies when it comes to ICS. Some people get so lost in, in, in setting up structure and operating within that confined structure that they lose focus on the, uh, on the incident itself. Fortunately, that that's that's a rarity, but uh, it does it does uh, actually exist. Um, starting to look at the clock and winding down. Couple of key takeaways, uh, if you would, from your healthcare crisis management experience, what, what would you want the emergency managers listening to this to know? Well, I think most of us know this, and, and so this is not going to be anything new, but blue sky operations are really key. Having the ability to know who the people you work with are across the town, across the borough, across the, whatever the city that you're in, having regular meetings with them, whether they're through you know, funded coalitions, whether they're through, you know, uh, regular meetings of, of, of the advocacy groups or, or either whoever, whoever is managing that, you really need to keep people uh, right with you in the same room so that you know who they are. I mean, I would, everybody will say the same thing, but that is 100% true. That, that certainly is something. And having the ability to train and exercise with your people to really make them understand that working together as a cohesive unit and being able to morph from your regular role and we see that in in you know in the hospital environment you know of all the healthcare places that I've they've worked with getting people out of their regular role into a different role especially in a hospital command center where they're maybe not doing the same thing that they normally did is getting them to be comfortable in their ability to be adaptable and nimble in a crisis so that you can tap into their other strengths to get the objectives met that it's outside of their regular you know, the normal course of business, because without, without their ability to be nimble and adaptable, you start to get, you lose your ability to uh, get those objectives met. And people are absolutely capable of incredible things. 100%. Under the right leadership with the, with the right uh, um, soft touch. And uh, it sounds like, it sounds like you went uh, in that direction. A couple of key takeaways I had from the beginning, and I think this shouldn't be lost. There are, uh, you know, emergency managers that operate in environments that, you know, that we do the the paperwork and we fill out the grant applications and and we do the the risk assessments and the fires and all that. And then it just goes on the shelf. The, you know, the the pre-disaster mitigation plan, it doesn't go anywhere. You said something very important, and that's the risk assessment actually led to risk reduction by way of mitigating risk. Uh, and you, and also planning and exercising for current risk. So the annual risk cycle is important in the healthcare 
uh, environment, I would argue that it's important in whatever industry, emergency managers, crisis managers function within. And uh, uh, well, that was a lot we packed to unpack in the yeah. last in the last half hour. I really sure. appreciate you uh, you coming on. So, uh, what are you reading these days? What uh, or what what other podcasts are you listening to that that we can share with the with the, with the folks? Well, I wish I had more time to do those kind of things. Certainly, um, you know, right. everybody's gonna, you know, the the low hanging fruit here is like is Asper Tracy. If that, you know, for from a healthcare standpoint, uh, get on the mailing list. They do have some resources that are worthwhile looking at for, you know, managing MCIs and and, and hazmat and, and that sort of thing. I think it's a, a good resource. Yeah, and just actually, I like to go to conferences. That's where I think I learn the most. I I meet people from other parts of the country. Uh, I meet people who are, have different types of challenges, different, you know, because from New York City, everybody's like, oh, you have everything there. But there's always there's issues here, too, uh, that they don't have and they have issues that we don't have. So I think it's important to understand, you know, what the universe looks like through other people. That's, to me, uh, more of a uh, where I like to go. You know, in closing, I had I had that experience. I I went from New York City to Colorado. Uh, to be an emergency manager. In fact, and I hope he's listening to this because it's a funny story. And we laugh about it to this day. And this is 10 years ago. Um, gentleman, uh, I reported to Tyler Allison was a general manager with the utility. He flew me out there just to ask me, am I going to be bored? He's like, well, Colorado, <laughs> Colorado Springs is a sleepy little town. Uh, you know, nothing happens here. And uh, are you okay with that? And I said, yeah. I said, look, I've had a career in New York State, New York City. I've worked around the country as a consultant. I'm okay with a little chill time. Well, it was anything but. Two weeks <laughs> after, right? You could imagine, right? Two weeks after, we had a presidentially declared flood disaster. I hadn't even unpacked yet. And uh, we had flooding and mudslides around the city and, quite frankly, throughout the state. I worked for utility. We were sending gas construction and engineering assets to support a mutual on mutual aid to support a, a, a fellow utility in Denver and some safety folks. So uh, it's different. So uh, right. The lessons learned, to your point, uh, uh, exist wherever we are. So I took lessons learned from me from New York. But now, back on the East Coast, I've taken a great amount of education, mm -hmm. information, and experience that I was able to garner from my time uh, in Colorado. So your point about conferences and meeting other people and cross-fertilizing is a great one. I really pre appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks, Steve. Uh, I appreciate uh, the yep. chance to chat with you about this. Yeah, good stuff. I want to thank uh, Greg for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and sharing his experience and uh, crisis management stories. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert so you know when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions. You can submit these comments or questions right in the uh, in the show on your favorite platform. I'll try to keep an eye on those, or you can just get me most easily uh, and uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, also, that's I think the best way to get Greg on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah LinkedIn get, is, is absolutely fine. Right, Greg Weyrich on LinkedIn. Uh, you can get me on Twitter, uh, and please include your email address and location so I can get back to you. And until next time, embrace the chaos. brings us to the end of this episode of five minutes to chaos we hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way remember 
Confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.